But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting from verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If you have ever taken on a really big project, one that you know is going to take a lot of time, that's complex and that's difficult, one of the most important questions to ask is, where do you begin? You have to separate the things that are critical and foundational, the first things to address, from things that you can come to later on in that big project. So, for example, if, like us, you rather bravely and somewhat naively took on a house that was going to need a whole load of work, do that again in a hurry, you have to think, well, what comes first? Do we do the electrics? Do we do the heating system? Do we do the windows? When can we decorate the bedrooms? When do we get to the kitchen? When do we get to the bathrooms? And what order do you take those things in? Because a big complex project needs thought about what comes first. Now, if you were with us last week as we started our series in 1 Corinthians, one of the things we did last week was we surveyed something of all the different things that are going on in the Corinthian church. And I don't know about you, but as I think about this church, and as you look at the fellowship there in Corinth, as Paul writes to them, I wonder, you ask the question, where do you begin with a church like this? Where do you begin? There's so many problems in Corinth. Do you start with their, with their worship services and do you talk about what it means to, to meet together in an orderly way that glorifies God as you work together as the Lord's people? Do you start there? Do you start by teaching about some of the key foundational Christian doctrines that they seem to have lost and forgotten, so perhaps the resurrection? Because they were confused about that, it seems. Or do you start to talk about some of the, the major sins that are there in the fellowship and are not dealt with, those public open sins that are there? Where, where do you start? With so much going wrong in Corinth, we might wonder where to begin. 
But as God looks at this church, and as the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write his letter to them, he knows the most important issues to address first. And last week, we we looked at all the reasons in those first nine verses for hope for this church. Because if we saw the problems, and Paul's going to get to the problems, we needed to know, and Paul needed to communicate to them, that there was hope. Change was possible. And now as we come uh, to these verses in chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, Paul comes, and God, through Paul, comes to address one of the foundational issues for the church family in Corinth. And that is a problem of divisions. Their lack of unity is a foundational problem because it is being worked out in many of the different struggles they have that Paul will address later on in the letter. So as you think about perhaps a problem of lawsuits where Christians were taking one another to court and suing each other, why was that happening? Well, part of the reason that was happening in Corinth is they had forgotten about the deep bonds that existed between them and what it meant to be a church family. They weren't unified in that sense. Perhaps, as we think further on in the letter, to the issues around the Lord's Supper and all the problems that are going on there. Well, those problems are rooted in lack of understanding of their unity in Christ, which is expressed there through the supper. And even in fact, that they were, the fact that they were happy to leave unchallenged public open sin within the fellowship, well, that was rooted in what they weren't thinking about in terms of unity because they saw sin only in terms of the personal implications rather than understanding the way in which public open sins affect the whole fellowship. So unity is a foundational issue because it affects so many other areas of church life together. And what was true in the days of Corinth is true in our days too as well, isn't it? Unity is a foundational issue. And it's a key issue for Christians in our day. I I think many would say that there's an increasing sense of tribalism among Christians in the West. And we divide ourselves in all kinds of wrong ways from brothers and sisters within our churches. And so it's timely that we focus upon this key subject as we begin to look at Paul's letter together. We're going to see two things this evening, two main headings, and we'll break down the second one into further parts. We're going to look at the source of the division in Corinth and seek to understand what's going on there. We're going to think a bit about how we can struggle in similar ways and ways in which divisions can arise in churches today. And then we're going to come and think about the solution to division. And because the problems that were specific to Corinth may not be the same in our day, That doesn't mean we can't learn from the solution. Because whilst the reasons were different, the solution is always the same. So let's look first of all at the source of division. Now, what we know really clearly is that the divisions in Corinth weren't around doctrinal disagreements. That there have been times in the history of the church where there have been major doctrinal disagreements. And At those times, it can be right to divide in a church when the church is departing from core biblical truth. So we might think in our own country of of a time in the 1970s where many people left Methodist and Baptist churches because those fellowships were moving away from key Christian doctrines. Things like the, the absolute authority of Scripture, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I visited churches in the north of England, and when we were living up there, it was significant to hear in the history of the churches just how many were founded in the 1970s and the 1980s because pastors and congregations left established churches because key truths were being undermined. And they would tell us stories of how they had to leave and how it came at great cost, but it was right to do so. But that is not the problem in Corinth. The problem in Corinth is explained for us in verses 11 and 12 because we read there that a report has come to Paul about what is going on. And the divisions in Corinth are centered around leaders. So some are saying, I follow Paul. Perhaps because they were converted under his ministry. Maybe they were baptized by him or perhaps just gravitated towards his personality. And there was a faction that was centered around Paul. Others were saying, well, well, I follow Apollos. And Apollos was a a teacher who had spent some time ministering in Corinth. We know from Acts 18 that he was a bold and gifted speaker. And so perhaps some were drawn to him because of his gifts and the manner of his ministry. So a group was circling around Apollos. And still others were saying, I follow Cephas, that is Peter. Now it's possible that, that Peter had visited the church in Corinth. And so some were drawn to him. So there's factions around those who follow Paul, those who follow Apollos, those who follow Cephas. And then interesting, if you notice there in verse 12, there are some who say, I follow Christ. And what's going on here? Well, well, I think this is another faction as well, another divisive group who are setting themselves up against others. They're dividing up according to these different leaders who they say they're attached to. Now, these divisions are not encouraged by the leaders, as far as we know. It doesn't seem that they're in competition with each other. Many of them are no longer in the church, and it doesn't seem that their teaching is in conflict. So why is it happening? Why are they dividing in this way? Well, there are divisions in the church because the church is doing something that had been the pattern for their lives in many areas. And it's something that we saw last week and we'll see again and again as we look at the church in Corinth. And that is that they were absorbing the values and patterns of their culture around them rather than listening to the scriptures. Now, in Corinth, as in many Greek cities, people divided according to the leaders they followed. So if someone spoke well, if someone's personality was charismatic, you would describe yourself as a follower of that man. There are inscriptions we have found in Corinth, archaeologists have found in Corinth, with with the wording, I follow this man or that particular man. And so you might say that the people in Corinth loved celebrities. There was a cult of celebrity. And that cult of celebrity had come into the Corinthian church and it was dividing the body of Christ. Dividing according to different leaders that they were gravitating towards. Now, before we think about other ways in which we can divide, I think it's helpful for us just to reflect a bit on this issue of a cult of celebrity. Because if we think about it, every age can have a celebrity culture, can't it? And the church has to be so careful that we don't absorb the celebrity culture of our age. In the Corinthian church, celebrity culture was local and it was creating that division within the church. In our day, we have a celebrity culture too, but that's an online culture, isn't it? It's an online culture and it can create problems in churches. 
We've probably heard of influencers, people on social media who can gain this huge following, giving them great power. We know that they can guarantee the success of a product or swing the share price of a company with just a few taps of their mobile phone. That's the celebrity culture of our day, of our culture in general. And we too can absorb that celebrity culture of our day into the church, just like the Corinthians did. Now, in a connected age, that means that some people who are sometimes called celebrity pastors can gain this huge following online. They can have power to influence millions through their teaching. And we might absorb their preaching without them knowing anything about our local church situation. And that disconnection between a teacher and the people isn't a biblical thing. If you look through the scriptures, there's always a connection between those who teach and those who receive their teaching. There is a relational link. But that doesn't happen in a celebrity culture age where that is our main source of teaching. Of course, it's not just pastors. Other Christians, too, who write, produce podcasts, produce videos, can gain this huge following, often in ways that are independent of local church oversights and without all the good and right assessments of maturity and character that happen through knowing someone in a personal way. Now, don't get me wrong. Our online world brings many blessings, but it also brings dangers, too. Biblically speaking, we should be connected relationally to our primary teachers. They should know us. And they should know us because then they can speak about our situations with personal knowledge. And we should know them. Because one of the markers of a false teacher is problems with their character. And you can't judge that online, can you? You just get a bit of it. As I reflected upon this celebrity culture in Corinth that had come into the church, and we thought about celebrity culture in our world, it's raised questions for me about whether I perhaps listen to podcasts or receive from teachers from whom I am disconnected relationally. Let's be careful about how the celebrity culture of our day might be affecting us in our churches. It's a little detour, but I think it's an important one to talk about. But coming back to the the source of these divisions, this celebrity culture was a source of divisions in Corinth. I I don't think it's a major source of divisions in the church today. But there are many other things that can cause splits in our day. One of the sad things is it's rare that division now happens because of major doctrinal reasons. Most of the divisions that I've heard about in churches, well, they're due to relational conflicts. They happen when personalities clash and people don't seek to get on together. They happen when smaller problems that grow through living life together aren't addressed in biblical ways, which means that small issues become big issues because we're not practicing the biblical principles of overlooking and forgiveness. And as I look at the church in Ireland, I think relational conflict is one of the major sources of division. It's one of the reasons why we need to work so hard on this as Christians in our own country. Now, there are other reasons, too, and we could, we could talk about them. But we know divisions have many sources. And whilst we may not have the same problems as in Corinth, the solution's always the same. 
And here we come to now look at the solution to division. And we see three things that Paul highlights in this passage as the way in which we deal with division in our churches. And the first is in verse 10. We must actively pursue unity. Look down with me at verse 10. Paul makes an appeal for unity, but look how carefully he puts it. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. Notice how carefully Paul makes this appeal. He appeals for unity rather than commanding it. I think the reason he's doing this is because he doesn't want people to hear this appeal for unity as a call to unite around him. And instead, he appeals in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He is saying, Christ calls us to this. It's not me calling you to this. It's not Apollos calling you to this or Cephas or anyone else. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is grounding this authority, his call for unity, not in any mere man, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look how specific he is in verse 10, in the second half of the verse, with three specific appeals for unity, all which communicate a need to be intentional in pursuing unity. He says, agree with one another in what you say. So he wants them to pursue a united testimony. It reminds us that our public testimony as a church says something about uh, the world, about, sorry, about God to the world. Agree with one another in what you say. Not that slide yet, guys. We're not quite there. Then he says, let there be no divisions among you. Now, the idea there is they need to actively seek to heal broken parts of the fellowship. The thought here of no divisions has this sense of of realigning bones that are broken and put out of place. So it's a deliberate act to do it. And then he also says, be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. Now, this doesn't mean that they will always think the same things about everything. But the point is that they will have a unity of mind and of purpose. They won't be seeking to pull in a whole range of different directions, but rather moving together as the Lord's people. So this pursuit of unity is to be deliberate and intentional. But maybe as we reflect upon the need to pursue unity, I'm not sure that's how most of us think about it. I wonder if for many of us, we think that unity is something we will drift into, but actually the scriptures call us to pursue it. It's a deliberate act. Now, this is where we need the slide. So can we have that slide that was just showing? Uh, thank you. So you will have seen on that slide uh, that... I've got the slide. Thank you very much. No, uh, just back. Thank you. Great. So you see on that slide that, that the New Testament has this strong focus upon pursuing unity. Look at the language of Paul. In, in Romans 14, he says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Ephesians 4 verse 3, Paul again says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then in Hebrews, we find something similar in chapter 12 and verse 14. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone. 
When God repeats something, it is particularly significant, isn't it? And all of those passages and what Paul is saying here remind us that we will not drift into peace and unity. It will come about if we pursue it. So I think we need to be very specific with ourselves about our pursuit of unity. Let me ask ourselves some very specific questions. When was the last time we prayed for greater unity with our brothers and sisters? Or perhaps committed to the Lord in prayer a situation where we could see a split emerging with another brother or sister? Does that move us such that we pray about it? Will we be committed to act deliberately when we know there is something affecting our fellowship with another believer in the church? You know, I think we live in days when we need to hear the call to pursue unity even more urgently. Because over the last few centuries, humanity has become much more individualistic. We have been taught to stop seeing ourselves as people who are connected to and shaped by wider networks like our family and our church and our community. And instead, we've been told to shape ourselves by looking within to find our identity. So you might say in our modern age, I matters more than we or us. So there's been a shift towards individualism. And then the pandemic has made that tendency towards individualism even stronger because we were physically turned inwards, weren't we? And so we talked a bit about the cult of the celebrity. We might say there has been a cult of individuality. And that has come to reign in our culture. And that is coming into the church And when that happens, it means that the way we think about the church is it's all about me. It's all about what I get out of it. It's all about whether it meets my needs. And when we do that, friends, divisions will quickly follow. Because the church can never meet my needs. Because all of our needs are not compatible, are they? Eventually, if you pursue that model, what do you get to? Well, you get to a church of one, which isn't a church. It's not a a community. It's not a body. And this focus upon individuality also means that we begin to see issues out of all proportion. Suddenly, every issue becomes a big thing because I care about it, and it matters most to me, and so it should matter to everyone else. Friends, we live in days when we need to work especially hard to pursue unity. As I talk to other friends in pastoral ministry around the country, divisions in churches, both because of those historic reasons of the focus on the individual, and particularly following the pandemic, are becoming a major problem. We've absorbed our culture. And so we must be deliberate in pursuing unity. And friends, perhaps the place where this really comes home is where we ask questions like, if there is a break in fellowship between myself and another believer, am I going to actively pursue restoration? Now look, it's there in the text. I want you to see and feel this in the text. Look at verse 10. Paul says... 
that there be no divisions among you. Now, if we're honest about our own hearts, I wonder if when we know there is a division between us and another Christian, perhaps we treat it like a problem in the house. You know, if something isn't working at home, what's the question you ask? Well, can I live with it? And is it critical? The boil is broken, I can't live with it, and it's critical. If there's a crack in the wall, I can live with it, and it's probably not critical. Friends, is there a danger that's how we approach life together as the Lord's people? Can I live with it? And if I can't, maybe I'll deal with it. Friends, that shouldn't be our spirit. God commands us in this passage to address divisions. So we need to work really hard to be united in mind and purpose. And I know that's hard to do. I know that's a painful thing to do because we'd much rather not have those conversations. So why should we pursue it? Well, it's because of what has joined us together. And here we come to the second thing Paul says. Paul says, be deliberate in your pursuit of unity. And then he says, never forget what Christ's death has achieved. Look at verse 13. There Paul takes us to the cross of Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's he saying? Well, he reminds us that only Christ was crucified for us, not Paul. He reminds us that we were baptized into the name of Christ, not Paul. What's he doing? He's saying, look, remember, brothers and sisters, you are one in the Lord Jesus. There's only one saviour, isn't there? There's only one name into whom you were baptised. And he's saying you have become one in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying there's real unity that exists within the body of Christ because Christ has made you one through his death. You have been baptised into his name as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that means there is this deep connection between you and he calls on two major Bible pictures of that deep connection in this passage. He says, because you have been made one in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are then the body of Christ. It's one of the pictures he calls on. Later on in chapter 12 in Corinthians, Paul will speak in this extended way about the church as the body of Christ. But he assumes that in verse 13, where he asks the question, is Christ divided? And what's the answer? No. No. He's not. And the church is one body. And so because we're one body, we shouldn't divide and quarrel with each other. Because we're made one in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to live out that one body principle in our life together. And then he calls on another picture of that unity that comes about in Christ's death when he says, you're the family of God. The church is God's household, and as men and women come to faith in Christ, they are described as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And twice in our passage, it's there in the text, there in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, there in verse 11, my brothers and sisters. Paul uses that idea of being a family. Now that term, brothers and sisters, or in the Greek it's just brothers, and our translators rightfully are using brothers and sisters to communicate that ladies are included as well. That term is really common in the New Testament, but 1 Corinthians 
is one of the strongest in highlighting this family connection within the church. So there are no less than 39 references to brothers and sisters in 1 Corinthians. It's a church that have forgotten they're a family. That's a third of all the references to it in the New Testament. So Paul is using this picture of the church as a body and the church as a family to press home that we are united in Christ. Now, we all know there are times when families don't get on. And I'm sure we've all got stories of that. And we all know there are times when our bodies can be hurting and burns, sorry, bones can be out of alignment. And if you speak to me afterwards, I've got a very gruesome story of something that happened in our family with a bone out of alignment. But I won't share it publicly. But what do you do in those situations? What do you do when the family is divided? What do you do when a bone is out of alignment in the body? Well, you take action to put things right, don't you? And that's what God wants us to do. Because the cross has created a connection between us as fellow believers that is real. It's not hypothetical. It's not just made up so that we can be called to be one. It's real, friends. Christ has done something. He has died on the cross. He has made us his body. We are a church family, and so it's right that we pursue unity. It's a great thing that we have this this reality of what has happened that gives us a basis and a reason to pursue unity. A couple of years ago, I came across a, a group called the Sunday Assembly. Have you heard of them? They have groups all across the country. They meet in cities and towns around the UK. And if you look at them, in many ways, it seems like a church. They sing together. They hear talks. And they even have tea and biscuits after the meeting. It was set up by two comedians who thought it would be great to have a meeting on a Sunday that was like the church, but without any reference to God or the Lord Jesus. They wanted to build connections and community with others because they knew that was important. But there was nothing to ground it, was there? But that's not us. That's not the church. We have deep connections through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are joined together through the work of Christ and through union with him. And so even when it's hard, we are to pursue unity together because Christ, through his death, has made us one. One body, one family. And then Paul comes to one further thing that will help us to stay together. Always keep the cross of Christ central. We've seen that we are to pursue unity intentionally. We have seen that we are never to forget what Christ's death has achieved. And so as I think of a brother or sister, I remember that I am one with them because of Christ's death. And then we are always to keep the cross central. Now, verse 17 is a bit of a transitional verse. It introduces what Paul is going to get to uh, for the next couple of chapters But the key thought is a centrality of the cross. Because the Corinthians had this wrong view of those who taught them and helped them. They thought too highly of them. And so Paul reminds them here that he is not the basis for their unity. Why? Because Paul is always going to push himself down. He's going to say, I was sent by Christ. For Christ did not send me to baptize. 
He was sent to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a messenger. He didn't have his own message. His message was the gospel of Christ. And in the way in which he went about communicating that, his goal was always to elevate Christ rather than himself. And so he wasn't going to use sophisticated words or ideas that would make himself sound great. Later on, Paul will say in chapter 3 that he and Apollos are only servants through whom you came to believe. And so here, Paul begins this process that he will work through again and again of making less of himself to keep the focus on the cross. Now, why is he doing that? Because he doesn't want a party uniting around him. He wants Christians united around the cross of Christ. The simplicity of a crucified saviour who died in shame for the sins of his people, that is what will bind together the people of God. Now, in the next few chapters, Paul We'll teach more and more about that. But as we close, let's remember how the cross deals with something that causes so many of our conflicts and stops us from addressing our conflicts, which is our human pride. In many cases, the reason we won't make the first move to heal a division, the reason why we won't want to speak with one voice as God's people, And the reason why we can't pursue common goals together is because our hearts are proud. And there is nothing more powerful than the cross to deal with your pride. The cross kills our pride because it shows us the depth of our sin, which is enough to humble us day by day. And the cross kills our pride because it shows us a love of God for us. That in spite of our sin, he loved us. And that's what keeps us humble on our knees. And so we can say that the cross doesn't just create unity in the church. It preserves unity among God's people. So brothers and sisters, the challenge to us in this passage is that though the sources of division might change... Division is always a danger. I believe it's a particular danger for the church in our land right now. So will we hear Paul's counsel? Will we hear what God is saying? Will we be deliberate in pursuing unity? Will we never forget what Christ's death has achieved and what that means about one another? And will we keep the cross of Christ central to humble ourselves and to put him first? May God give us grace that we would follow his word.